0: Good night and welcome to another episode of That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and as usual sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening Pastor.
1: Good evening Brother Nathan and good evening to those who might be listening to the program.
0: It is a blessing to have you listening and we look forward to you interacting with us. Pastor we're going to jump right back in where we left off last week. Last week there was a caller who had a question about Proverbs 26 verses 3 to 5 Uh, give me just a second to pull up that reference and I will read it in order to set the context Proverbs 26 verses 3 to 5 a whip for the horse a bridle for the ass and a rod for the fool's back Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit.
1: Yeah, the the um, the verses must be taken together. Uh, verse number three uh, is using some analogies, uh, comparing a horse and an ass that needs to be bridle and whipped. The whole idea is to control and direct, and and um, uh, to, to, to discipline. That's the whole idea. And the same way a horse and a donkey needs to be bridled and need to be whipped and disciplined, it is saying a fool who lacks this question of course, and one that uh, doesn't have any understanding, he also needs some kind of discipline. And then he tells us two things, that when you responded to him, this is where the apparent contradiction comes in. He says, answer not a fool according to his folly, and then he gives an answer, lest he be also like him. And then the next one, it says, answer fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. There's no contradiction here. In in the first um, section, verse 5, it is talking about not responding in kind like a fool to make yourself a fool as well. So that's why it says, don't answer in that way. The second one has to do with, do answer him, because if you don't answer him, uh, he might go away thinking he's a Daniel when he's a real fool. So rather than leave, let him go away conceited that he has won the, the debate. Sometimes there are times when you have to answer him in a way that you humiliate him so you understand that it's not his wisdom. You can't leave him in that state. Uh, for example, in the first case, uh, if I, if I, it's saying that don't respond to him in kind. Um, if he taunts you, don't taunt him, basically. If he sneers at you, don't sneer at him like a fool does. Uh, if he shouts at you, don't get in a shouting match with him. Uh, if he, he responds to you in anger, don't respond to him like you respond. You know, don't be like him in that area. And then the second one is answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own. So the whole idea now is to help the fool uh, you don't want him when he t- says something he thinks he's won the game and he's this big man this macho man he's a Daniel he's a, he's, a, he's a Solomon and there are times when in truth and fact you need to confute him lest he become so conceited about himself that he keeps making himself a fool so you have to expose the folly of what he's saying so there's no real contradiction but notice the, the, the reason is in the first one don't be a fool like him but in the case don't leave him conceited if you see that it needs to be taught uh, and he need to be shown that he's wrong, what he's saying. That's basically what what he's, what he's saying.
0: So my question to you, Pastor, is mm-hmm. if I'm in a discussion or maybe an argument and with an individual, um, it may be my opinion that someone is a fool, but how do you decide whether to apply this verse whether someone is actually a fool and whether they're just someone who's not intelligent?
1: Well, the discernment here is that you have to use this discretion. There are some people who are genuinely making statements, and they're doing it um, out of real lack of knowledge. That's the difference. There are some people who are just downright right foolish. The, you, you listen to them again and again, and all the arguments seem to be going on one particular train of thought. And you can see that no matter what you tell them, they never seem to learn. So I think as a matter of subjective uh, opinion that you're dealing with. You have to know the individual you're dealing with. Do I want to help him? Uh, I, I realize that maybe he's not knowledgeable. He doesn't read, hasn't read in the information. He doesn't have the data. So I want to help him by giving me the data and showing him what he's wrong. But even if you were able to do that, to show him the data that he's wrong, and he's still insisting on maintaining his ignorance, there comes a point when you realize that it's no use uh, going on in this direction So in actual fact, I don't really answer him because it doesn't help in the situation. So I think it's a matter of discretion. I think it's a matter of subjective opinion, but I think it relies on knowing the person you're dealing with to decide whether or not this is a person who lacks knowledge or this is really a person who's trying to be difficult and very foolish in what they're saying.
0: One final question in relation to that verse. uh, Verse 25 where it says, you should answer him so that he doesn't become wise in his own eyes. Does that mean that I have to have the last word in an argument or a discussion?
1: No, I think what it's saying to you basically is that when he says something and it's a real good answer for it, given the answer, doesn't mean that you have to be the last person. Because even though you told him, told him that, he might still not grasp it and he might still reject it. Uh, and then, but again, there are times when somebody rejects something, but in their sober moments when they reflect on it they might respond to the answer in a positive way. But you don't have to get the last word in the case like that. It's just that you try to inform him what he's wrong, give him the rationale for that, the data for it, and then hopefully that, that would uh, help him to, to to smart up. Other than that, if he just doesn't learn, he doesn't pay attention, he's just fixing his own ways and he's just blind, uh, there are some people you just have to just leave them and, and don't get in an argument with them.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor David Murphy, pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. There is still plenty of time in the program for you to send in your questions. We are covering questions that have come in since last week, and then we're going to jump back into our topic that we were discussing last week, which is the Bible and slavery. Does the Bible condone slavery? If you know someone who is interested in that topic, maybe you've had a discussion with a coworker, a family, friend, go ahead and WhatsApp them, call them, let them know, encourage them to tune into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse this evening. For the next 90 minutes, we will be discussing this topic or you can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 1268-462-7420 if you have a question. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1268-782-1454. We have a text message that has come in from St. Kitts. Good night, pastor. You said that one and this is referencing last week. You said that one become a slave when they lose a war. Who started it first in the Bible and where in the Bible that one became a slave first because they lost a war?
1: Well, there's several references that you can use. Um, for example, in Numbers 31.9, there's a reference there uh, after a war that um, the Midianites, um, you'll see that um, the women were taken into bondage. There's also Second Kings uh, 5.2. Uh, You have another reference um, that these were that. And then if you read the book of Jeremiah and the book of uh, Ezekiel, you'll find that when the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom in 722, uh, they took the northern kingdom, which is Israel, into slavery. And then in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians came, uh, Jeremiah talked about this. Ezekiel has it as well. you find that they led them away in chains and bondage to Babylon. And then don't forget, in 70 AD, uh, again, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they took all the Jews into slavery. That's a historical fact. So all of these are instant in- illustrations of when people went to war, and uh, the people were defeated. The victims, or the ones who were conquered, were, were made slaves and taken to slavery. You got it in first in Numbers three nine. You got it in Second Kings five twelve. And if you read the prophetic books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you find a reference to the Northern Kingdom being led into captivity in Assyria, and also you find the Southern Kingdom, Judah, led into Babylon by the Babylonian five eighty six, and then in seventy AD, uh, which is not in the New Testament itself. Uh, but you can find in history that is exactly what happened with the Romans.
0: Another question that has come in, Pastor, can you please explain the purpose of the lampstand in Revelation and the one with Moses?
1: Well, uh, the lampstand in Revelation, not to sure which one they're referring to. They're referring to the the seven churches, the lampstand that begins in chapter uh, 2 and 3, where there's seven lamps and Christ walking in the mist. I'm assuming that's what the person is referring to. And then, of course, you've got the lampstand in the tabernacle. You've got this lampstand in the in the temple. The fact is there, basically, that it's a seven-branch uh, lampstand. And uh, the number seven in the Bible is always a number of completion. Uh, that is why you have these seven churches, because it's a whole cycle of the church history from beginning to the end. Uh, that's why you've got seven churches. Uh, in the... Old Testament, the lampstand, of course, was a type of Christ and a type of God, who is light. And the fact that it was seven again, it's about the complete perfection of God's light, etc., etc. So it's used symbolically in the temple and in the tabernacle uh, to illustrate God as light and Christ as the light of the world. So, matter of fact, every single implement in the tabernacle and in the temple represented some aspect of Christ's person or his work. Uh, what are you talking about? The show bread that you the priest would have, you Christ is the bread of life. When you talk about the altar of incense, he's the sweet-smelling savor that goes at the as an offering. Uh, when you look at the, the different skins that were used to cover the tabernacle, whether you the veil of the temple was split, and the Bible said that that the veil of his flesh, every single aspect uh, in the tabernacle or the temple represented symbolically something about Christ and His work. And in regard to the ta- the the, the, uh, the lampstand, it represented Him as the light of the world and uh, the light in all His perfection. But also in Revelations chapter two and three, it is talking about the Uh, history of the church, uh, going from the first century down to the end, the Laodicean church, which is the final phase that we are currently in. Uh, If you have not uh, been—we've done done a series on this, by the way, in our church, uh, Revelations 2 and 3, dealing with these seven churches— and um, I don't know if I uh, maybe Nathan might be able to help you when he finish of how you can listen to that series, but it explains the 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 significance of those seven lights which make up the lampstand in the book of Revelation.
0: If you're interested in hearing those sermons, I'm sure we can get those for you. You can just contact us here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and ask for the uh, sermons. On the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1 and chapter yeah, 2.
1: One other thing, Nathan, probably you can read Second Samuel 22-29, and you'll see that um, the reference there is made. David is making a reference to God, and he calls God a lamp, basically.
0: Second Samuel
1: 22-29. Uh,
0: all right. Second Samuel twenty two twenty nine says for thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. That's the
1: idea of God is a light. See the same idea. That's also related to the lamp in the tabernacle that he's he's seen as the light basically of humanity, light of the world, also a type of Christ.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, we're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on eleven sixty AM. Online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you can listen to us in Antigua and nearby islands on 92.3 FM. And no matter where you are, you can listen to us and follow us. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. Thank you for those who are joining us, whether it be the continent of North America or whether it be Europe or elsewhere. We appreciate you listening to the program tonight. The time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios is 744. Pastor, another question that's come in along those same lines.
1: What is the purpose
0: of the rainbow
1: around the throne? Well, again, the rainbow should take us back to Genesis uh, chapter 9. Remember after the flood, uh, one of the things when God made a covenant with um, Noah and the earth, that he would not destroy the earth with water again uh, as a symbol of the perpetuity of that, that it would never again happen, the Lord put uh, the rainbow. So that every time we see the rainbow, it's a symbol of grace and mercy. Uh, It's interesting, Nathan, that the rainbow, the word for rainbow uh, in the book of Genesis, is the same word for the bow in an arrow. You know, arrow, the bow and arrow? It's as though God took the weapon that should be used against man and hung it in the sky to remind him of his mercy. He could have destroyed him, but he, he, he were of his mercy. So it's always a symbol of his mercy and his grace. When you come to Revelation, again, around the throne, you've got the rainbow again, symbolizing again his mercy and his grace. Because in the book of Revelation, uh, you have to deal with the final phase of God's judgment, the seven-year tribulation period. But even in the, his judgment, he doesn't destroy all of humanity. So even in the severity of his judgment, he still exercises grace and mercy. So around his throne is that symbol uh, reminding us of his, his mercy and his grace. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, when they describing God and his awesome appearance, uh, he described the radiance around God as the like appearance of a rainbow uh, around the throne. You find that in Ezekiel one twenty-eight as well. So it has to do with God's glory, but it, specifically in relation to humanity, it reminds man of his mercy and his grace in his judgment. And that's what would be needed in the tribulation period because it's a final phase of God judging humanity. And uh, the Bible says, There never has been nor will there ever be a time, by the time the Lord is over, over half the world's population is totally destroyed, but not all of it because of his mercy and his grace. And that symbol there, the rainbow, reminds us of his grace and his mercy.
0: Pastor, we've got a number of questions that are coming in, and callers, we have a caller on the air from Virgin Gorda. Thank you very much for calling, and go ahead with your question,
1: please. Yeah, I want Pastor Murphy yes, I, I to explain. No, let me, let, me talk, let me talk to you just a moment. I did call, I did check, uh, and I haven't forgotten you. This one time I want to make sure that I, <laughs> I didn't disappoint you, but I'm, okay. still going, I'm still going to pursue it, okay? Go ahead. Very You're could welcome, sir. Yeah. Your, your question now. Uh, could you uh, uh, explain Jeremiah twenty nine, twelve, and 13 for me? Jeremiah
0: 29. Let me 12. pull that up and read it. Jeremiah twenty nine, twelve, and 13 says, Yes. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart.
1: Well, I think that is one of the greatest passages. of Scripture that gave us all hope. You know, there's sometimes when we think that God is far away, but God is saying to us, if we really seek him with all his heart, with all our hearts, he will find us. So any man that really wants to find God and has a true, genuine desire to find God, that's a biblical promise he should hold on to, that if we really sincerely seek God with all his heart, Mm -hmm. uh, God will make himself known to that person. And this has has Mm -hmm. been true, of of course, of a lot of uh, when missionaries have gone to different parts of the world, uh, when they arrived, they found that people were actually waiting and expecting because because uh, they were looking for to God to find an answer, and and God sent mm. the missionary. So that's one of the great promises of the Bible, sir, that we can all depend on, and you can give that to yes. any man who wants hope. Uh-huh. So it, well, thanks. Yes, thanks a lot, Pastor Murphy. You're welcome, sir. God bless. Yes, yes, and. And I will as soon as I see your son. I promise you, I will call you because I really want to see him. Yeah, I will be very glad if you do that for me. I will that do that. I, I will keep trying. Time. I will keep trying. I made sure that Nathan reminded me, and as soon as he reminded me, I, I made a call, and mm-hmm. um, they told me that they weren't allowing anybody at this point in time. Okay. Thank you, sir. God bless. Yeah, God bless you, Pastor. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening from Virgin Gordon and encouraging others to listen. Uh, as you were discussing that verse there, Jeremiah twenty nine twelve and 13, uh, that's a powerful verse and actually is a verse that uh, fits right in with a conversation I was having with an individual last yeah. evening and just about the, the promise that if we really are seeking the truth, God will enlighten us.
1: Yeah. A the, the, uh, very good illustration of that, Nathan, is the centurion in Acts chapter 10 who was uh, searching for God, and he was praying and doing do the things that he felt he should do. You remember, and Peter was sent. Uh, he so, was told to go and send for Peter, and Peter came and in his home. That's an idea of a person who really, really. You remember the Ethiopian, you know? Yeah, he's gone down to. He's not a. He, he's searching for truth. He goes down to Israel. He observes the Israeli feast. He's coming out of Israel, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah 53. And while he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and remember that Philip is having a tremendous revival in in Samaria, and the Lord took Philip from Samaria to go into Gaza to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, you can't want anything more uh, that synchronizes more with that. A man seeking God with all of his heart, he's from Ethiopia, and God is taking... uh, um, Taking Philip from a great revival in Samaria to meet one man in the desert to show him the way of Christ. I I think that's another illustration of how seeking God, uh, God provides the way that you can have this contact so you can get to know him.
0: Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios is 7.50 on this Tuesday evening. If you have a question, the phone line is available again. You can call one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, a question that has just come in from sweet antigua hi good night i would like to know what is the forbidden fruit the forbidden fruit in the garden of eden no,
1: nobody knows what the forbidden <laughs> fruit is uh, some people say it's an apple <laughs> all <laughs> conjecture all we know that it was a restricted fruit that um, man was told not to to eat We're not, i'm glad it didn't tell us exactly which one it is as well <laughs> 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 to be honest with you but we remember that um as a result of that, that that was whole guard was guarded, and uh, no man could go go uh, there again. So we don't know exactly what the forbidden fruit is. It's just man was on probation, and it could have been any fruit. To be honest with you, but it's just one of the. It's like you're giving your kids. You have everything in this house, but this one thing. Don't touch it. The moment you tell your kid that one thing, his whole mind is focused on that one thing. He could have a thousand times things in the house he could say, but that one thing you told him that the time, that is human nature, right? It, when we put restrictions on people, it, uh, it awakens their curiosity as to why, why this particular thing. Uh, so we don't know exactly what the forbidden fruit was. We just know it was a test, a moral test, that man had to decide whether or not he would obey God and trust God. And God made it easy, by the way, because he gave him everything. Everything was his. The whole real estate of the world was his. Every fruit was his, Every, except one. And uh, today, uh, you know, it, it, it's like God giving us six days in a week and telling us, I just want one out of it. And even that one, we want to rob him of. You know, it's 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 just human nature, I guess. But uh, we don't know exactly what the forbidden fruit was. Some people say, by the way, another thing about Nathan—I don't know if you heard this—but they always believe it was sex. Uh, you, know, you ever heard that? I've never heard oh, that. Well, you must be—you must be living <laughs> in <from laughs> the world. It's believed that uh, uh, Eve had relations with Adam with uh, the devil, basically. Yeah, it, it's believed that. You shocked you you're very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what rock I've been living under. <laughs> That's because they allegorize it. Okay. You know, you know they don't take it literally. Like we take it literal, they just, they allegorize it. Um, but yeah, that is very, very common uh belief if you if you study the system of um the, the book of Genesis and read some of the, the commentators, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Pastor, here's a question that has come in. Can you please explain the word war? In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 10, Exodus one ten says, Come on, let us deal wisely with them, let they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land.
1: Well, I think the best thing to do to understand this context is, is, is not exactly who is speaking. If you go into, let's start from verse number 7 of this chapter, and I'll comment as you, as you go to uh, read verse 7. All right.
0: Verse 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them.
1: So he's talking about Israel in Egypt. And there's a, a population explosion. The the fertility rate of the Israelis has seen to be so high that the Egyptians are beginning to fear that the numbers increasing so much uh that they had to do something about it. You notice the language that is used to describe how fruitful they, were. they said they were fruitful, they increased abundantly, they were multiplied, they were waxed exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. So here's Israel it came down seventy five, remember with Joseph? Uh with um uh, when uh um, Jacob went down. Uh, with the with the seventy five of them, they went down into Egypt, uh, and now they're increasing and they're growing because remember they were in Egypt for four hundred and thirty years, so they're beginning to increase. Verse eight.
0: Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph.
1: Yeah, and this is a, a different king now. This is not the king when was under when Joseph was under him. Remember that Joseph came up with a seven year economic plan that saved the whole nation of of, of the, the Egyptian nation by um, kind of um, when they had good crops, saving the crops etc. So that in the seven years of famine they had supplies they could sell to all nations around the world basically. So here's another king that uh, doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know what Joseph has been able to do to help uh, Egypt in preserving the economy of the country and now he is fearful that the Jews are multiplying too uh, too much then verse verse 9
0: And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we.
1: Right. So now you've got what you might call today xenophobia. Uh, You've got these foreigners, these Jews are becoming too plentiful. And if they continue to grow like this numerically, they will have uh, political power. And there's a potential danger to the state that there might be an insurrection or verse 10.
0: Come, now let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass, that there, there falleth out any war. They join also unto our enemies, and fight against us, and so get up out of the land.
1: Here is the, the pretext that is used now to suppress the Jews and to keep them in bondage. The idea was that you know they're becoming so much that if an uh, enemy uh, were to come against to fight against Egypt, what would happen that these Jews are so much now they might just decide to join with the enemy and fight against us so we're going to lose that was the pretext that was used to oppress the the Jews there are two methods that he decided how we're going to deal with the Jewish question it's almost like Hitlerian right now if you look at verse um, look at verse um, 11 to 14
0: All right. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Verse 13, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. In mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor.
1: This is the the pretext. Now they're going to, okay, we got to deal with this Jewish question. It's almost like Hitler... Uh, blaming all the problems in Germany on the Jews, so that they became the target. So they're now being oppression. Uh, they made them people who would do the the, the construction, etc cetera, et cetera. So they they're trying to oppress them by use using all kind of um, uh, tactics shoe tactics, uh, and including the, the bondage that they have there. But there's something else that they decided. That didn't work because in spite of that, what happened, they keep multiplying, they keep growing. Look at verse 15 to 16.
0: And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, which the name of the one was Siphrah, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then ye they shall live.
1: That's the plan now. It's not only just uh, physical oppression, it's now infanticide, and especially uh, when it relates to the men. So now the, uh, the midwives are given a, a, a mandate when a Hebrew boy is born. That's why Moses was hidden uh, in the mulrushes, etc., etc. But this is the same old idea that uh, every country has about foreigners. Uh, when they start to get t- too many, uh, I think in Antigua, 30% of your population, if I heard the last uh, election before this, was the fact that you have about 30% of your population are made of people who are not really born in Antigua. I think that created hysteria, and that led to uh, the idea that they had to um, deal with a foreign problem, of course. Uh, that was done by the previous government and uh, in our church we lost uh, we had a Spanish church running maybe close to 60 we lost about half of those within that, that, that period but it's the same fear that people have any country that begins to have too many foreigners. You always get a backlash from the nationals because they think the foreigners are going to take the jobs. And in the case of Egypt, the fear was these people are getting too large. The numbers are too too great. If we ever have a war with another enemy, it is a possibility that these would join with them, and that led to the infanticide. That led to physical oppression. So that's what that verse is about: the possibility that there might be a war, which is always war, uh, in that part of the world. And um, the the fear was that the Jews would join with the enemy and uh, fight against the Egyptians.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is 8 o'clock on this Tuesday evening. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live call-in program, interactive call-in program, and we look forward to interacting with you. There are a number of ways you can interact. You can call and be put live on the air. 1-268-462-7420 is the phone number. Let me give that to you again. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. If you would like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 782 1454. 4 Thank you to those of you who have already interacted with us this evening and we look forward to additional interaction and questions throughout the evening. We're going to jump back into our topic from last week and that of slavery and what does the Bible say about slavery? Does the Bible support slavery? Last week, uh, our episode was all about this, and it's episode 141, so if you were not able to listen last week and you want to go back and catch up on that foundational information that Pastor Murphy shared, you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, and you can click on the link that uh, is it says podcast and go to the That's Truth podcast uh, files and go to episode 141. Another way you can get to it is just go to Google or whatever search engine you want and type in That's Truth podcast. Choose your preferred provider, whether it be Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. And then go to the list of previous episodes and go to episode 141, and we were discussing slavery. Now, jumping in where we left off last week, Pastor, what about slavery in the New Testament? You finished last week by talking about slavery in the Old Testament, but what about in the New Testament? Was there any difference between it, uh, the modern era of slavery? and did Paul mention or endorse slavery at all?
1: Well, there's no question when you um, do the historical study about the New Testament that the, uh, in, the in, in the social setting, uh, slavery was unquestionably a settled part of life in the New Testament, but the form of slavery in the New Testament was patently different than that in the 16th and the 19th century. As a matter of fact, uh, the 16th and 19th century was far more brutal than than previously. I'll explain that there are seven significant differences between the 16th to 19th century slavery and New Testament slavery. And these are what was noted by the historians. Let me just draw them to your attention. Number one, in the first century, the education of slaves was encouraged and it was seen as enhancing the value of the slave. That was not true of the slavery in the 16th to 19th century. Two, uh, many slaves were assigned challenging and sensitive uh, social positions such as teaching and s- even involving in civic administration. Uh, it might shock you that some of the, the, the teachers that taught some of the master's children was actually slaves so the, this is a, something completely different than what you had in the sixteenth and nineteenth century. Uh, thirdly, uh, slaves could own property, including other slaves. That was not true, again, of the, of the 16th to 19th century. Um, fourthly, slaves could participate in the same religious functions as their masters. Uh, again, you, you find that in the 16th, you, you, you church slaves could meet, and they have their own religious meetings, but they couldn't be part of the, uh, the white meetings, etc. So that's a difference there, again. Number five, public assemblies of slaves were not prohibited by law. Uh, in the first century. Uh, Six, most slaves could anticipate being uh, emancipated by age 30. That was the average age at which a slave would be released. Again, I I don't have to tell you that in the 16th to 19th century, that was not true. And then number seven, the Greco-Roman slavery of the first century was not based on color or race or prejudice. Uh, And that is a significant difference between the two. Uh, The African slavery was basically uh, a racist uh, color thing. It had nothing to do with just, but in the first century, it was not a matter of race or color, basically. uh, And and that is why um, when the the Christians in the uh, 16th to 19th century was using the New Testament form of slavery as a base for the support of the atrocity was being committed, they weren't dealing with the same things and the same type of slavery. But not having the knowledge of what was the norm in the first century, that was used uh um f- to 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 perpetuate the the slave say four hundred years from the sixteenth to the nineteenth century basically
0: so would you say that you'd be confident that if Paul was alive during the sixteenth the nineteenth century he would have had a taken a very strong stand against the slavery that was taking place then?
1: I would say that what Paul would have done is pretty much say to the slave what he said to all the slaves in the New Testament, uh, you are under a system. Your job as a believer is to try to be salvific in everything you do. Try to be as good a person as you can be. Work as hard as you can. Don't create an occasion where it's able to use against the Christian faith to destroy the Christian faith. I would like to say this, Christianity is not a revolutionary religion in the sense that it calls for arms and weapons. It's a peaceful way of bringing about change through modeling your life so that you impact the person. That's how you, That's how Christianity operates. We have a lot of radicals today who take these scriptures and try to want to use the Bible as a, a revolutionary tool. Uh, to create chaos and to call... Even the liberation theology that came out of southern South America, they're actually supported and uh, paid for arms and, uh, against different regimes, etc., etc. True Christianity would never do that. Uh, it wants change, but it wants change through the individual impacting the society. It's not about... Because let, let me put it this way. We are all sinners. We all know that. We all deserve hell. The Christianity is not just concerned about the slave, believe it or not, is considerably master as well, all of us uh, need redemption. And so it, first and foremost it's a salvific faith that focuses on regenerating people who are blind and depraved in their sinful nature and the way to do that is by the personal life and to have a personal impact to lead that person to faith.
0: So let me delve into that a little bit. Uh, In light of, and I realize we're in the Caribbean, but I think we're all aware of the concept of the Revolutionary War, America fighting for freedom from Great Britain. From your understanding of biblical ethics, and I realize I'm putting you in the hot seat here, (laughs) uh, was it— Appropriate for a Christian in that case to f- take up arms to fight against the British?
1: To well, I think I think it depends because I, I don't know the whole story of the Civil War, uh, not the Civil War, the, the War of Independence in America, etc. Uh, I know that there is some difference of opinion of Christians. Some people think it was a mistake that uh, revolution is never right. I have also read some books, um, especially um, Francis Schaefer He has a a book on the Christian Manifesto and some other books that he wrote. He does believe that there is such a thing as a just war, and he would put the American Revolution... Uh, into that category it's a matter of interpretation again I don't know what atrocities were committed because I'm not I haven't studied uh, American history to that extent Uh, but I do think myself I do think there is a time for uh, a just war I think if I was living in Germany for example and I had discovered that they were doing uh, killing 6 million Jews in the way they were doing it I think that could cause me to want to join the army and fight against an evil regime like that but generally speaking uh Christianity operates on the basis of Changing through the life of the individual. And the main purpose of Christianity is that it's salvific. It's about redeeming humanity, irrespective of color, class, or creed. It's about winning men, because we're all in the same boat, and the boat is sinking. And there's only one person to rescue, that is Christ. And we must present Christ to all men, irrespective. The problem I find that happened, especially during the slave, is that the church had us. And by the way, I'm not condemning uh, because when we talk about who were the ones that brought about the revolution, uh, the, 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 the downfall of the slavery, uh, in the forefront of this were not the politicians per se. It was the Christian movement like Wesley, uh, Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, Buxton and, and uh, uh, all of those, those which we'll mention some of them. So the the people in the forefront, the Quakers, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the, what you call the Evangelical um, uh, Anglicans, which formed the Clapham group, these are the main forces that really brought England to its knees about slavery and, and appealed to the conscience of the, the British people that eventually led to the downfall of slavery. So when I hear people talk about Christianity was uh, connive with slavery and stuff, they, 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 they t- what you, you got to decide wh- which Christianity you're talking about because mm-hmm. it was Christianity that brought it to its knees and actually caused it to be destroyed. So, um, but that's the thing about Christianity. Wherever a person finds themselves, whatever regime, if a person is in Russia or a person is in China, you live within the system. It doesn't mean you've proved the system, and you try to use your influence to change the system, but not by weapons of war. It's more by your lifestyle and by your, your, your even sometimes suffering uh, has been the means to break the heart of people to understand that what we're doing is wrong. This is what happened in the catacombs when they would take all the Christians and let loose the animals on them, and the Christians would be praying, and they couldn't get over that. After a while, the people began to realize this is cruelty. This is no longer any more fun. And that was part of the way it brought the catacombs to an end. But um, that's the whole thing about Christianity. It's really a a religion that tries to bring about transformation through modeling the life of Christ. And it's more about bringing about uh, revolution by peace as opposed by arms and weaponry.
0: Two questions that have come in. The first one comes from Antigua. Good evening. Which is worse, being a slave to man or being a slave to sin?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Uh, Very thought-provoking. Yeah, but the the truth of the matter is uh, both are bad, to be very honest with you. Uh, If you want to see what God intended for man to be, you've got to go back to the creation account where man was designed to be free. It's only after sin entered the picture that God instituted human government in, in, in Genesis chapter 9. And the reason that was needed now was because, because of man's sinful nature, man had to be controlled. There had to be controlling forces on man to, so that man's evil can be repressed. And that is where you needed legitimate authority to even exercise capital punishment, you find that in Genesis chapter 9. It, uh, if man had not sinned, man would have had all the freedom. But you get an idea what God wants. Same thing with marriage. You understand what God intended marriage to be. It tended to be a permanent relationship. But again, sin into the picture. And in Deuteronomy, he made concessions to human weakness so that he allowed divorce to protect the woman so she'd have a legal document and woman we'll be left stranded because a man has just shut out the house and she has no way to fend for herself. So um, both are wrong, uh, both, both are uh, evil, but uh, th- to, to be very honest with you, it all starts with sin. So sin has to be worse than that.
0: And a WhatsApp question that's come in. Good night. Does it matter the day we worship? Since in this generation it's a very big problem.
1: Well, I, I leave that to people in terms of your your um, Christian liberty. Paul talks about let every man be fully. He said one regard one day after another. Another thing is then Paul said let every man be fully persuaded in himself. That's the Christian manifesto right there. Uh, we worship God. Uh, on, on Sunday, because we th- we we believe that is the appropriate day because of the resurrection of Christ, which marked the new creation. The Sabbath was a celebration of the old creation, and uh, and a day was set aside for that. And we think it's appropriate that, and it's significant, by the way, that every time Christ appeared after uh, his resurrection, about six or seven times, he appears on the first day of the week. We also find that the Holy Spirit came on the first day of the week. We also find that Paul tells the believers in Corinthians, set aside your offering on the first day of the week. We also find Paul preaching at, uh, in, in the book of Acts when Eutychus fell down and broke his neck, basically, on the first day of the week. That is very, 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 very significant uh, uh, when you come together on the first day of the week, set aside, Paul says in the book of Corinthians. We believe and not only that, we've got the precedent of church history the Church Fathers, I, I, I've done this on another program where I can quote from the very first century where the believers were meeting on the first to celebrate the Lord's Day. Again and again, that's the day that uh, the Christians decided to, to celebrate. And uh, I have no problem with that. I think if a person wants to celebrate on Saturday, they've got Christian freedom to do that. Paul said, let every man be fully persuaded in his mind.
0: And if you are interested in hearing a whole episode on that topic. We did cover that back in 2018, and we would love for you to go back and listen to it. It is available online for free. Uh, Just go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast, and look for episode number four. And it's entitled The Sabbath, and that's got a lot of great information and talking about what the Bible says about what day of the week we worship the Lord on. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios is 8.15. We're broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 AM online at www.radiolighthouse.org and on FM, 92.3 FM for the island of Antigua and nearby islands. For this program and this program alone, we are also on Facebook Live. You can get there by going to... Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed and then you can comment your questions in addition to listening to the program and in seeing behind the scenes in the studio what goes on during this program. Pastor, anything else you'd like to mention about what uh, might be mentioned about slavery in the New Testament?
1: No, I think that um, the, the the other thing I would mention that we got to understand that what the New Testament is doing is regulating uh, rather than sanctioning. There's a difference in the Scriptures. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, we're told that government is ordained of God. So here is the Christians in the first century, uh, about 60% of the Roman population is, in- is slaves, and yet uh, Paul doesn't uh, bring up a rebellion against what is going on. It's, it's a social system he's found there, and he's asking believers to operate within the system in such a way that they bring glory to God and that they have a, a life that is salvific in the sense of influencing their masters that be brought to faith by the example of their lives. So be the best workers that they could be, uh, be kind uh, as, as much as they can, etc., etc. Uh, this is the whole teaching of, of Scripture that even to suffer for Christ and for the sake of Christ, that must be the ambition. It's always salvific. So that's all I would like to say uh, in terms, I think that kind of sums sums it up.
0: I know there are some people that would claim that the Bible supports slavery, but I think a good way to put an end to that or to address it is to look at what some of the Biblical principles were that were used to undermine the atrocity of slavery.
1: Okay, let me give you some references here that uh, we could probably look at. Uh, Take Galatians 3.28 for just a moment, one of the great principles of the Bible that really was partly responsible for the demise of uh, the slavery, because this is what they, they, they learned.
0: And this would be slavery in the 16th and 19th century. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus.
1: That was one of the biblical principles that were emphasized, that the slave was a human being, like we are human beings he if he's a believer he's a believer like we are believers god makes no distinction god is impartial when it comes to humanity that was one of the the, the great teachings that we they're all alike there's no the distinctions are are removed you know and then of course the idea of creation Uh, that we're made in the image of God. Not only the fact that the European is made in the image of God, but the the black, the Chinese, the Indian, they're all made in the image of God. That was another vital principle, the fact that man is made in the image of God. And then um, uh, Revelations 18.13 is another good reference.
0: Revelation 18.13 says, and cinnamon and odors and ointments And frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men.
1: Yes, talking about the system in the end times before the Babylonian system and all the different. Uh, commercial activities are involved in, but notice that one is them in there that is condemned as what? Slaves. Slaves, see. The Bible in itself condemning dealing in these, in, and also in, um, in Timothy, uh, I think it's First Timothy chapter 1, it's all about uh, when you kidnap men, that that is unlawful. Uh, in the book of Timothy, he said the law was meant uh, not for the man who is righteous, but for a man who's unrighteous, and then lists. Those who are ungodly, and one of those are those who who are kidnappers of humankind. That's another verse that uh, I use. And then remember that um, James, if you look at James 2, 1 to 9 uh, it, it condemns any kind of class distinctions in, in, in there, if you must read a few verses there.
0: James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My brethren, have not faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of God, of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are ye not partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Starting in verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, Hath not God chosen the poor of this rich world in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well." And verse 9, but if ye res- have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced the, of the law as transgressors.
1: Yeah, that, the, James is talking about the idea of um, not getting the class distinction. Of course, the, the contrast there is the treatment of the poor and the rich differently. But again, that's the biblical principle that you should treat people on the same level of equality and because a guy comes into the church and he's not dressed properly you, you tell him you know you go in the back and the, the guy comes in with flashy uh, clothes you put into the front uh, that's just a biblical way of saying that there should be no partiality within the church there should be no be a class distinction you shouldn't uh, favor the poor above the rich above the poor etc. That is another biblical principle the matter of e- e- equality so you've got the, the idea there you've got the, the, uh, the fact that man is made in the image of God you've got the idea that there's neither Bond are free in christ we 're all brothers and sisters in christ you 've got the uh, the condemnation of the dealing with in uh, the bodies and souls of men in terms of trading in revelation chapter eighteen uh, you got here the matter of uh, avoiding class distinction but also um, there 's an interesting one in in uh, the book of Philemon, uh, I think we all familiar with that where there was a runaway slave called Onesimus, and Paul met him in prison, you remember? Paul was in prison, and then uh, Onesimus became converted, and the apostle Paul advised Onesimus to go back to his master. A lot of people say, well, isn't that Paul uh, endorsing slavery? Again, you've got to understand what New Testament slavery was, a completely different thing altogether. Uh, The slave was valued, uh, and as I said, uh, he had, he would be free normally at 30, uh, it was not a race thing. Uh, he was one that they would try to educate because he was more value-educated and he was used to train the the children of the, the, the mass, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the thing is that when Paul told him to return and Paul wrote uh, to Philemon, if you look Philemon, look at verse number 16. It's a fascinating verse that was used uh, as well.
0: Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord?
1: Okay, that, that Paul is saying, okay, I send it, he's going back to you, but when you receive him now, you don't receive him as a slave any longer. You receive him well, as a brother in Christ on the same level of equality. That was a p- verse that was that was helpful uh, in terms of helping people understand how Paul viewed this whole situation, and that the slave would be treated as a brother and sister in Christ and not treated unfairly or treated unfairly. Um, Disrespectfully or brutally because of its color, its pigmentation, uh, a completely different system altogether. So, that idea of brotherhood is another vital principle. Of course, th- in addition to that, you have our Lord's teaching on uh, loving your neighbor. You have the idea of the oneness of the church. And uh, we mentioned the brotherhood of believers. And uh, we also had the idea that uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where it said that God is made of all um, one blood. So there's to be no distinction. In other words, there's no superior blood. We all got the same blood of, of all nations, basically, made of all nations one blood. So that's the idea of the unity of the human race. We came in from one common stock, Adam and Eve, and, uh, and that that was helpful. In, uh, in, in these are some of the principles that were used. The other thing that w- was also important is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. That's
0: a powerful uh, chapter.
1: Yeah, that, that has to do with... Uh, Confuting any kind of feeling of its superiority, that whole but ter- it calls for humility and to esteem the other person better than yourself. Uh, this uh, was a profound teaching uh, in terms of helping people to understand that you must not have this superior attitude. Yes. Pastor, we have a
0: caller from Nevis. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please.
1: Yes. Yes, sir. How are you doing? Oh, good. sir.
0: I would like you to explain uh, First First Corinthians seven verse twenty-one. Maybe it takes more than one verse to explain it. Uh huh. First Corinthians seven twenty-one verse twenty-one and down. Okay. All right. That says, "Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it, but if thou mayest be free, use it rather."
1: Well, again, Paul is facing the reality that some people have to see that the state that they found themselves in, it may be out of God's providence a person find themselves in that, that situation. You have to discern, is this something that God has providentially placed you in? Do you want to remain in that particular state? Or as Paul said, if you can get your freedom, choose your freedom. So it's a choice between... But again, notice that it relates, the believer must relate his status in life in regards to God's will. And in the case of the in the New Testament where people were uh, found themselves as slaves, Paul has to say you must ask yourself, does God have your disposition for a particular purpose? Is it to win the master, to win the master's house? Remember that in the book of Romans, when Paul is closing, he has Christians in Caesar's household. So God is not just interested about, he's also interested in Caesar. He's not just interested in Caesar's subject, but in Caesar's well. And I think we need to understand that that because we are living in a fallen world and we are all deserving of hell, we are all sinners, that people in the blindness, and the darkness, have been cruel, wicked, evil. But God recognizes that they too need the gospel, and sometimes we may be the instruments of bringing that person to the light. If we respond in kind how they treat us, uh, they are not going to see any difference between ourselves and themselves, and that's why Christians have preferred to suffer on occasions in order to win the person who is doing them harm. Now, that, that is a mystery to people today because we've got all these rights. And we claim all of these rights. Now in a democracy, let me just say this, uh, we ought to use our rights if we can't. Paul, you did use those in the book of uh, Acts as well. You remember when Paul was in prison? Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And he used the right to appeal to Caesar. But again, he didn't use that on every occasion. Uh, It depended on the moment and the time and the circumstances to decide, is this something the Lord wants me to do? Or do I just pretend as though I'm not a Roman citizen? So I think that Paul is advising us to look at whatever situation we find ourselves. Take a a marriage. Uh, Does God want me to stay in this marriage? My husband has been unfaithful a dozen times, and no matter what I've done, you just can't rush out the marriage without thinking about uh, what does God want me to do in this situation? Could I stay and bear this agony with the hope that he'll be brought to faith in Christ? That's an option. So we should not all rush out of a marriage because we're experiencing infidelity in the marriage, even though you have a legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. But you have to ask yourself, I'm in this situation. Could God be using this to, to for me to influence this man uh, whom I love but is so unfaithful to me? Can I, can I stick with him and show him by my life uh, what the love of Christ is, unconditional love? you know you just don't jump out you got to know what the lord is leading and i think that's what paul is teaching there whatever you find yourself in trying to find out if you're called to be in that situation for a particular ministry but in the case of being a slave in those new testament days paul said you know what uh you know you got to decide if you feel that the lord wants you to stay in this situation stay in it remember within by age 30 you're free or If you can afford to get your freedom before, Paul says, you exercise that right. But it has to do with Christian discernment and the believer's relationship before God, discerning what God's will in that circumstance. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, sir. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your calling, honestly. Thank you so much. God bless.
0: Have a blessed night there in Nevis. Thank you for calling, Nathan. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios is 829. We have 30 minutes left in the program tonight. Continue to send in your questions or to call in. Pastor, we have a couple of questions that have come in. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, Pastor. Have you ever touched on the topic of why the book of Enoch isn't part of the Bible or what's the story behind it?
1: Uh, I can't remember. I think we did something on that. Uh, Nathan is the best person to refer you to, but I did go into some – that question came up some time ago, I remember. If not, uh, if we haven't dealt with it, I certainly would look into it and, and, and deal a program with it.
0: I know we've dealt with it. I don't think it was an extensive part of a program. It may have been an episode talking about the Bible and how we got the Bible. Yeah, I think
1: when we dealt with the, uh, the Apocrypha as well, I think we, we made some reference to the Book of Una because. A lot of people uh, say that that, that uh, because we don't mention certain books as though we don't know they exist, but they either belong to this super fit, uh, what is called a pseudepicryphal or the apocryphal. It all depends on uh, those books.
0: That's a good question, and thank you for bringing that up. Um,
1: we'll check it, and if we haven't um, dealt with it to any great length and we can't give you a reference, we'll pick it up at uh, one of our programs.
0: Yeah. Give us uh, until next week, and I'll start out the program next week with letting you know where you might be able to find more information about that in a previous episode. I know there was an episode where we talked about how we got the Bible and where it came from. Yeah. Uh, another question that has come in, sin is so powerful that it brought Lucifer down. So what is sin?
1: Well, the Bible tells us what sin is. Sin is the transgression to law. And as a matter of fact, um, the reason why the law came in was to make sin exceedingly sinful. Uh, but sin is basically uh, going against any command that God has given, and it's it's going against uh, any directive that God has given. For example, Adam was given a command not to eat the fruit, and uh, he violated that command, and that brought sin Upon, upon humankind. But there are many other words in the Bible that are used for sin. For example, the word uh is the idea of missing the mark. And that is that God has set a standard. Uh, you might call it perfection. And man, even if he came 99.9, which no man has ever come, basically, uh, it shows that man falls short of the righteous standard of God because man has a sinful nature. There's also the word that is used for trespass, which the idea is that uh, there are clearly defined parameters that God has set, and man has broken those parameters, that's the moral law that man has broken, so that a sinner now becomes a transgressor when there's a deliberate law that he has broken, including the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then there are also other words that are used for sin, like defilement, um, uh, it's another word that is used, uh, man has become contaminated, man has become polluted. Uh, there's several other words that is that are used, but the whole idea, the basic concept behind sin is the violation of God's will and and uh, going against what God has commanded us to do. That's the essence of sin. Thank you very much for
0: those questions. And Pastor well,
1: let me make yeah. one of clarification here, Nathan. Now, those things I mentioned, these are actual acts of sin. But man has what is called a sinful nature as well. And it's a sinful nature in man that drives man to commit acts of sin. Now, the thing about the cross, and you read acts chapter, sorry, Romans chapter 6, God not only deals with our acts of sin when Christ died on the, on the cross for our sins, but if you read uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, when Christ died, it also meant that the sin nature uh, was dealt with as well. And there was death to the sin nature. And the word death, of course, had to do with a separation. Uh, if you listen to our broadcast in the Roman series, I'm dealing with that currently. But it was not just that God dealt with sins. He also dealt with the sin nature when Christ died on the cross. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter number 6. But the sin nature is the problem. And, and the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the believer... Uh, when he puts his faith and trust in Christ has died to the sin nature and what that means is there's been a separation between the believer and the old nature and the new nature has been placed between those so that a believer is not compelled to sin Uh, and that's what Paul makes it, let no sin reign any longer in your bodies, control you dominate your life, that power of sin has been broken the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and uh, Paul says reckon that to be so It's an act of faith to believe that that is what has happened at the cross and act on that in your life. So that when you're tempted, uh, you need to talk to the sin nature and say, I don't have to do this. I have victory in Christ. I have the power of Christ. And claim that power, and you gain the victory. Romans chapter 6, deals with that fairly extensively.
0: Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 834. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in. We've got about 25 minutes left in the program. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, right before those questions came in, you were talking about Philippians chapter two verses one through eight. Yeah,
1: I was saying that in that particular passage is calling for the believer to exercise humiliation. Uh, humility and also to uh, ask him to esteem other people better than himself uh, and not to become arrogant and conceited with pride or any kind of racial superiority that people are talking about today. The Bible is against all of that uh, and is calling for us to exercise. Sinners ought to be the most humble creatures (laughs) that God ever made. Uh, we all stand guilty before God, and we don't deserve anything that He has done for us, and He acts in grace, and because of His pardoning, and mercy and His grace to us, we ought to show favor to other people and be, be generous with other people and also be kind to other people and show mercy to other people and be forgiving, and we ought to treat each other as creatures made in the image of God.
0: Anything else you want to mention in relation to... Uh, biblical principles that were used to undermine the practice of
1: slavery? Now, I think that I just mentioned about eight or nine of those things okay. that were we used, but uh, the overall idea of the New Testament was really the predominant uh, principle that was used, The especially our Lord's teaching and the Beatitudes, and our Lord's teaching, well, the, the Golden Rule, doing to others, our Lord's, uh, the Samaritan, uh, Jews and the Samaritan, uh, you know, that, that encounter. And the Pauline writings, the brotherhood of the believer, that we treat each other as brothers in Christ, equality, that the lines of uh, distinction have been erased between the Jew and the Gentiles, and there's no free not bond, bond or free, barbarian, or, you know, that Paul talks about. Uh, and then uh, I mentioned also in, in Timothy, where I think it's in First Timothy, yeah, Second Timothy chapter 1 or First Timothy chapter 1, I, I don't have it in my mind right now where the idea of kidnapping men is condemned and said to be an ungodly act that the law is against. All of these are matters that were basically used. Moving
0: on to the next question or topic that I have, Uh, and then this might be hard to narrow it down, but how could you say that such an evil system as slavery could be explained? Like, what was the rationale or justification that was used to defend it?
1: Well, historians tell us that there were several uh, reasons and several arguments that were used to justify the slave trade. Uh, let me just uh, list about seven of these for you. One was that slavery was an ancient institution of practice through all human civilization, so it was no big deal, basically. Uh, all, all nations have practiced slavery at some point in time. Two, that the Africans by nature were barbaric and needed to be civilized. Uh, That is uh, a reality, and so they had to kind of Europeanize the the, the continent of Africa. Three, the Bible supported slavery. That's what was used again and again. Uh, Paul didn't condemn it. uh, Paul seemed to endorse it. The Old Testament, uh, again, uh, seemed to legitimize it. But again, that was the abuse of Scripture, not understanding. It was more of regulating what was there. Uh, from biblical, then slavery would be beneficial for the Africans because it would be introduce them to Christianity. Remember that, mm. in spite of all that, no, th- that one is not too bad because in, when when Christianity came to Africa, it was a pagan, just like right. the just I, like the Europeans were I pagans.
0: Know, I know it's true, but yeah. but uh, <laughs> to use that as a rationale,
1: yeah. But the the idea of bringing Christianity uh, would be beneficial to. Because they, they, you know, even in Africa today, if you talk to people from Nigeria and different parts of Africa, they believe a lot in spiritism. Uh, even uh, you'd be shocked how much they believe that. There's um, still a lot of idolatry, uh, paganism is still there in Africa. My wife came back from Cameroon, and she can give you a whole story, as well as some other people from our, our church that been to Cameroon can give you a whole story that. Uh, things that are practiced there that are still very, very, very ancient. Then number five, uh, Africans were best suited for the tropics in terms of agriculture. Uh, And I think that's a a reality, but the way of being it done is more, you're actually enslaving somebody to do work for you. But the idea that they they can handle the tropics and the sun better than uh, the European could, I think that was another reason. And then slavery was essential for the economic prosperity, because the trade between the islands and Britain, where you take tobacco, cotton, uh, sugar—these were precious commodities—and uh, they were they, they kept the economy going. Uh, so it was vital to the economy. Same thing in America, uh, with the states producing sugar and cotton and and, um, and tobacco, basically. And then number seven, uh, this is a sad one: that the Africans were inferior to the Europeans, and uh, therefore, uh, basically suited for slavery. Uh, These are, this is human rationale taking, uh, trying to create reasons to support a system that was evil. And um, so these are several reasons that they would use to support the the regime. As a matter of fact, when uh, Wilberforce and Granville Sharp and uh, those people started fighting slavery, one of the great fears that they had that if they did away with the slave trade, uh, it would put I think it was 168 British ships that were involved in the slave trade. They calculated, these are people who oppose it. How many soldiers would lose a job? How many ships would lose their service? <laughs> I wow. mean, the reality was, the, and then how it would affect the economy. So it was a financial argument as well that was opposing invested interests. You know, I, I mentioned in the last program that money is the root of all evil. It was an economic system that depended on f- cheap labor, Create commodities that brought high prices. Yes,
0: Pastor. We have a caller from Bolands, Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello, good
1: night. Good night, madam. I would like to know
0: if sexual harassment is a kind of um, slavery.
1: Sexual harassment? Well, I'll tell you what. Sexual harassment is uh, what is a kind of slavery. Not. It's something that's illegal. And if you're experiencing sexual harassment, uh, you ought to use the legal uh, authorities to try to bring that in line because that should not be practiced. We men has gone away with that for far too long, especially people in positions, especially people who are uh, employ people, etc., uh, etc. Et but uh, sexual uh, sex slavery, there is that going on where you're selling um, the sex trade that is going on. With you, you know, you get kids. And you, you get them especially from the Far East uh, and stuff like that. And then you, you, you sell them to the Europeans, you sell them to the Americans, you sell them to different parts of the world. And so the brisk trade, we'll talk about that as we come to the end of the program, uh, that sex trade is part of slavery, enslaving people.
0: Thank you very much for that call. We appreciate it. And thank you for listening from Boland, Antigua. Pastor... Uh, a question that has come in, or a suggested topic: Can you do a series on the power and significance of music?
1: I will try, but I'll be—I might try to get somebody who is far more better. I, I am not a musician. Uh, I understand some of the basics, but from a biblical perspective, I can explore, uh, read some books on it, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, kind of define what good music is and. Uh, but I, I will I will try and do that And if I feel inadequate Because I'm not a musician I will try to find somebody Within our circle Or somebody uh, Another Christian Who is very good at, at, at music And I'll ask them To take the program But I do think it's important Because uh, I am a person as well that i don 't music is not neutral any any fool that says that doesn 't understand what music is because music can make you i can I can get you tapping your foot by the type of music I can get you depressed by the type of music you listen to mm. so to say that music is neutral really is an idiotic statement and the the fact is that uh, I think that the lyrics and the music has to match uh, and, and the problem today by the way, I think within the church is very simple you've got people who were in the world and they're playing all kinds of music in dance houses and whatever then they got converted and then they now said they want to use their talent and the church bring them into the church and they take the same type of beat the same type of musical style bring it within the church they just put Christian words to it so we end up calling it Christian music because we put Christian words to it just like me um, going into um, writing I'm a I'm a fowl or I'm a duck or something because I <laughs> I mean there's no rationale behind that whatsoever I think there is good Christian music I think there's bad Christian music I think there's good lyrics there are bad lyrics but I think the lyrics and the music and I think that when you understand that the three parts of music uh, rhythm melody and um, harmony you understand know, those three; con- they have to be balanced. What I find within the Caribbean, which I might say this, and I hope nobody's offended, but if you're offended, that's your problem. There's far too much rhythm and beat. There's not the harmony and and melody that needs to be there, and uh, and I think that that, to my mind, creates confusion and noise, uh, and and the music doesn't so much glorify God. Uh, in my judgment, I think it, it, it aroused people's emotions and their feelings, and the whole thing is centered about how I feel. That's not what music is about in the church. It's about bringing glory to God, brings man's attention to God. And I think it's, it's unfortunate that I, we don't have somebody in the Caribbean, at least I don't know of that person, who is highly competent in music. I'm not talking somebody who went and did two years uh, or three years, not somebody who has have a, done real serious uh, mu- music studies, and who is able now to to speak on these matters from a Christian perspective. Uh, I don't know if anybody can do that currently. I know people who went to school and maybe did two years, but they're not really musicians in the sense that they're high class, competent uh, uh, people who who have studied this thing like up to the doctorate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think that's one of the deficiencies of our times. You were referencing that music
0: is not uh, neutral. And as you were talking about the fact that I can make you do whatever with music, back when uh, COVID hit, uh-huh. And the country was shut down here in Antigua, and you were only allowed to go to the grocery store between these certain hours, and there was only a certain number of people allowed in the grocery store. They were trying to move through people through quickly, and it was very interesting at the grocery store here in Jolly Harbor. They played the fastest music I have ever heard uh- and th- they normally don't play that kind of music, but it was – and I've heard restaurant uh, managers say the same thing. If the place is packed and there's a lot of people waiting, they'll play a fast-paced music in order – it just it sets the mood yes. in your body whether you realize yeah. it or not.
1: Yeah, I think I said on the program some time ago, I had a fr- I have a friend in Barbados who uh, was a believer and got away from the Lord and got involved in uh, being a DJ. And I, he's told me this person is a pastor. I'm telling you this, and he's repented. Now he's back in the Lord's work, and he's uh, recently got married, by the way. And he's he, he he helps regulate music in churches. But he said, you know, when I was doing a DJ, if I wanted a fight to break out in the in the dance hall, we knew exactly what music to play to get the fight going. If we wanted people to lovey dovey, we know what music uh, we we could play. We just we we just could control the crowd by the style of music we were playing. And he said, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. And I think any honest DJ uh, could probably sanction that, that we, we can control the crowd by the type of music we, we play. But uh, well, we'll try to do a, a series on that. Uh, thank you very much for the individual who sent that in, and they sent a follow-up comment.
0: Pastor, I'm referring to the biblical aspect of it. I strongly oh, believe okay. that music is not to be taken lightly. Basically, it's like playing with fire.
1: Well, if I, if you want me to go through the Bible and what the biblical principles are, we can do that, and I promise you we'll do that in another program.
0: Thank you for that suggestion. And maybe you have another suggestion. No matter where you're listening from, we would uh, appreciate your input. We want this program to be as practical and useful as possible for you. And so knowing what is on your mind and what you would like discussed is important to us. Pastor, as we continue to work through this uh, stack of material that we have before us, we have about 12 minutes left in the program tonight. What are some of the forces or leaders that were instrumental in bringing an end to the slave trade between the Caribbean and England?
1: I don't think that people fully understand what revival in the 18th and the 19th century did to end slavery. Okay. Uh the uh the nineteenth century eighteenth century revival by the Wesley revival and then the Great Awakening in America, 18th, late eighteenth, 18th nineteenth century. These were prominent influences that really led to uh, the downfall of slavery because what it did, it awakened the consciences of people uh, in the British Empire and in the American Empire. Uh, the second thing I would say in addition to this uh, dyma- dynamic spiritual revival that was in the 18th and 19th century, um, the fact that they had c- prominent Christian statesmen, especially within the British Parliament, we all know about Wilberforce and the power, how power that he was in, in, in pulling down slavery, but I think uh, here is a, a layman in the church, not a pastor, but elected to uh, the House of Commons in, in England, and he's using his position as a, pa- as, a as a Christian uh, to push for slavery. And no man did more to bring the end of slave trade in in, in England and the Caribbean than Wilberforce. But um, so you've got that. But and then there was also Christian activism, where you've got. Um, Christians in different parts and and different positions uh, challenging uh, believers about the horrors of slavery. And then, of course, you had uh, prominent religious movements like the Quakers, the Moravians, you had the Baptists. You had the what I call the evangelical Anglicans, especially what is called the Clapham Group, uh, with, with Wilberforce and Granville Sharp, and those type of people, were, uh, and then the Methodists. One cannot underestimate the the, the impact of Methodism uh, on slavery with, with John Wesley, and of course there were some Presbyterians as well. As far as some of the prominent religious leaders, uh, I mentioned Wilberforce. There's Doctor Ryland who founded the. Congregationalist London Missionary Society. There's Granville Sharp. There's Henry Thornton. There's uh, Joseph Hughes. There's Thomas Clark, who was a Baptist. There's Charles Grant, who was a Methodist. There's the Prime Minister Percival of England uh, as well. He was an Anglican, but he was an evangelical Anglican who supported the uh, the abolitionists. There's Thomas Clarkson, who was uh, what you might call a River Force Research Arm, and then there was John Newton and Zachary Macaulay, and then later there was uh, Buxton as well. These are some of the real uh, vital characters and uh, some of the prominent names involved. <laughs> in the demise of this slave trade. A
0: WhatsApp question that has come in, are the churches in the book of Revelation mentioned referring to present churches now?
1: Well, the, 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 the thing you've got to understand about the seven churches in Revelation, that why they chart the entire church history in seven distinct stages? Uh, that have been identified by church historians. We are now in the final stage, which is the Seventh Church, which is the Laodicean Church. But there are characteristics of those six other churches that continue throughout the dispensation. But it climaxes with the Laodicean Church, which is the lukewarm church. This is where we are today. And I don't think anybody could dispute that that's where we are today, the Laodicean Church. And the thing about it, that the Laodicean Church, is that it's a church that is boasting about how rich it is. And you look at Christianity today in terms of the building, the structures, uh, the type of uh, ministries, these mega churches, there's no doubt that if an uh, alien came down from planet uh, from another planet, if there were aliens, which I don't believe, by the way. But if you were to kind of visit planet Earth and visit some of the churches and see the mega churches, they would say, wow, these churches are rich. But then the Lord said, you're poor and blind and miserable and don't even know your real state. I think that's where we are today. A lukewarm church. We need a heart. Nor are we cold. We are somewhere in between. Uh, that's the state of the church. And in spite of its material prosperity, uh, it doesn't have much spiritual life in it. That is generally the overall uh, state of the church. So to answer your question, uh, the book of Revelations charged the seventh church. But we are now in the final church, which is Laodicea and church, the seventh church. Again, I would recommend that you probably check with Nathan. Uh, I did a series on this and uh on the seven church of revelation, and you might want to listen to that to give you an idea of what the the seven stages are and where we are currently
0: if you're interested in those sermons, just send us a whatsapp, and we can get those to you uh Pastor, you mentioned Wilberforce, and we're running low on time. but can you give us a brief overview of him
1: yeah i would uh, I think everybody is familiar with the prominence that Wilberforce played in the demise of the slave uh, slave trade. Uh, he was the major leader, and he's the one that led the struggle to free the blacks in slavery in England and was partly responsible as well for pushing for the complete abolition of slavery in the British uh, uh, overseas possessions. Wilberforce, well uh, 1759 to 1833, uh, they call him the Nightingale of the House of Commons because. He had such a lovely voice, and he's a man that gives superb speeches. When they describe him, I was amazed how they describe him small, feeble, wrong-shouldered, poor digestion, and poor eyesight. As a matter of fact, after 1788, uh, he had a, uh, a breakdown, and for the next 20 years of his life, he had to take small doses of opium in order to function uh, to maintain his health. Um, at first, he was a socialite. Uh, I'm told that he went to balls and theatres, and he loved to play cards, and he liked to mimic people uh, out of mockery. even uh, liked to entertain people by singing at, at functions, and he was a great conversationalist. He was the darling of high society, and then something happened to him. He read Philip Doddridge's book, uh, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, and he became disturbed after he read that book. To find out if what Doddridge said was correct, he decided to study the New Testament for himself, and he read the New Testament in Greek to discover if what, what Doddridge was saying, discovered that Doddridge was saying exactly that man, how man could come to know the Christ and the need of man. Then he was under such deep conviction in 1785, he talked to John Newton, and uh, John Newton uh, told him that his biggest problem was his pride. And he agreed that his biggest problem was Brian. and Then in late eight, 1785, he had a spiritual experience and uh, became a believer in Christ. Uh, he is the one, after he became converted, he gave up all these vain uh, functions and all the other high-class things that he would do. And in 1787, he wrote in his journal that he had set two objectives before him, number one. Uh, he would suppress the slave trade and bring it to an end. And number two, he would try to reform the manners of the upper class in England. And he devoted his life uh, to end slavery. He joined with a guy called Clarkson, who became the person who would do all the research and get all the data about the slave trade. And he would channel all that information to Wilderforce, who would go into Parliament and bring all of these arguments, all of these statistics. Uh, he also had the... Um, uh, the the help of um, Prime Minister William Pitt, who was had attended school with him, and he was also part of the system that helped. That we were first was able to use uh, his influence to get the Prime Minister on his side in that regard. Uh, as you know, he tried again and again and again to end slavery, and there were all kind of delay tactics and uh, vested interests. But eventually, finally. Uh, he was able to bring the whole slave system in England to an end. And then when he could not continue to work, he enlisted Father Boxton and Zachary Macaulay uh, to, to try to end slavery within the British um, uh, overseas possessions. So His whole story is just an amazing story of conversion. But uh, he had a privilege. Oper- and by the way, I'm told that Uh, He gave so much devotion to the the abolition of slavery that all of his business enterprises collapsed. As a matter of fact, it was Pitt and some people who actually had to give money to his wife for several years after he had died to support Mm. her. Uh, He just was willing to sacrifice all to end slavery. I think anyone who has seen a documentary or read anything about this man is a marvelous individual. And we are thankful God to use a Christian like that to really bring slavery to its end. In the
0: last minute, can you give us an idea of various methods that may have been used for overcoming? The slave trade.
1: There are so many. but Nathan, I was when I was reading. I said, "Wow, we got to learn from this." Uh, they used the pulpit, of course, to preach about it. They used petitions to parliamentarians. They used publication of magazines and pamphlets, and then they sent circular letters to the uh, to the people in the in the in the different areas. Uh, another thing is that they interviewed influential people like uh, Pr- Prime Minister Percival and, and Pitt publicly. They boycotted sugar from the Caribbean. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we think that this is something new, but they actually stopped buying brown sugar because it was made in the Caribbean. They sent letters to parliamentarians. Then they did fasting and prayer. And even um, Buxton in 1833, just before slave trade ended in 1834, he had a national day of prayer in England for the ending of the slave trade. And then I must say as well, they played politics. And what I mean by that is that when Wilberforce would have lost in 1806, they actually sent circular letters to encourage the people to vote for Wilberforce so he wouldn't lose his position. So you talk about all these different diverse means uh, that was used. And then the other thing, Nathan, is that they they wrote books uh, and they created publishing houses and they formed anti-slave organizations that were highly uh, efficient. They even wrote poems. Like William Cooper, he wrote a song called "The Negro's Complaint" that was set to music. Even art, uh, you've heard of Wedgwood that makes these uh, uh, China crystals. Um, uh, what do you call them? Um, um, crystalware. Okay. He even made cameos of slaves pleading for themselves that they're humans like anybody to be treated. And then, of course, they pushed the British government uh, to create a colony. Sierra Leone was co- committed to yep. cr- so the, the, uh, the slaves, when they were free, they would have a colony to go to. They did a tremendous amount of work.
0: In the last 20 seconds, is there any final lessons or any final thoughts that you'd like to share?
1: Well, there's always evil in the world, and I think the church and God's people ought to be able to fight evil. And there are def- several different means that we can le- use. And within a democracy, there are certain things that we can could, we can pick it. That's a right that we have. We can write the, the, the uh, ministers of government. We can s- circulate letters. We can uh, do books, etc.,
0: Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth.